Well, good morning again, and good morning online. What you don't see when you're online is that that music feels a little dramatic when you're in the room, but it's so that we can sync up with you. And, and for the drama, everyone, that's in honor of Jesus. That's not me, okay? So if, if you're expecting me to match the music, I'm sorry, I'm already going to disappoint you. But he's worthy of all that celebration. Uh, listen, we're continuing in our study through Hebrews but I'm going to start you in Exodus. So if you want to take your Bible, actually open to Exodus 19. Um, that's where we're going to start because I think um, in order to, to really do justice to this passage, we need to work our way up to it and kind of land there in a little bit. Um, a number of years ago, one of my daughters was uh, teaching for um, a summer in Zambia and um, while she was there, she did some teaching in the city and then some teaching out in the bush. And out in the bush, there was a school that was run by this Christian couple, and they were going to um, kind of utilize the different teachers that had come and, and watch over them, and which was encouraging to me as a dad because that particular area was known for black mambas and uh, cobras being a significant part of the local population. And in fact, the week before uh, my daughter got there, the, uh, the guy who's in charge went to the tool shed and opened it up, and I, I don't know if you'd say standing there or what, but there was a cobra there uh, looking at him, and he was looking at it, and his immediate response was he started praying and casting out the demon in Jesus' name, like, get out of here, you know, in Jesus' name, I rebuke you, and all of this stuff, and there was a commotion going on, and his wife heard that from where she was, so she came over to the shed. And she looked at the situation, and she grabbed a hoe and took the head off of the cobra. <laughs> and um, I tell that story. I've actually told that before, but I want to recapture something with that story because we find it a little humorous. And there is some humor embedded in the story, but there's also, it kind of betrays something that is what I want to get at. And that is that we live in a very secularized, non-spiritual world. And so what the guy was doing seems maybe just quaint um, or quirky or perhaps even naive, foolish, fill in the blank, and not necessarily so. Now, it turns out in that particular case, there was nothing demonic going on, and take the hoe and take the head off the cobra was exactly the right response. But our very sterile, non-spiritual view of the world is actually the exception. We are the outliers in the world. Uh, most of the rest of the world has a much more spiritual view, saying there's more things that go on than just what you and I can explain, just what you and I typically experience, and those things matter. In fact, those things often tend to be pretty scary. So in Thailand, for instance, and actually all over, but Thailand is where I've noticed them, are these spirit houses, and they look like really glorified birdhouse mansions, right? These big things. And and they are designed to protect you from spirits. A lot of Asia has those curved roofs. Maybe you have never wondered why those roofs are curved, but it's actually to keep the spirits away. A lot of the world has uh, the evil eye, right? And, and the evil eye response is this little eye-looking emblem or talisman that's supposed to protect you from this curse that can come. A huge part of the world has that. Um, there's just a lot of places where it's part of the everyday furniture of life to expect that there's things going on in the spiritual realm, things that are bigger than us, things that are not just easily explained by our typical rational experience, but they're nonetheless real, and often they're really scary, 
And what do we do with them? Um, God is a part of the spiritual world. And I think it's important for us to take a moment and recapture some of the sense of the spiritual world and even um, the scariness of it, if you will, if we're going to understand what we're supposed to understand and respond to the text that we're supposed to respond to this morning. Now, those examples I gave you, and I could have given you lots more from other places in the world, but those examples were all what you might call warding off demons, right? Demons and angels are part of the spiritual world, and they're powerful, and um, they're scary, and demons are evil, right? And so it's about dealing with them, and, and as we have shared Christ in different places, that's actually been a major issue. I remember one time I was sharing Christ with this woman in India. She was very open. She was very interested in responding, and in fact, she did respond, and so I'm working through a translator, and we spend quite a bit of time because we have to share the gospel in detail. We don't want people to just kind of get a, a little snippet. They need to really understand what God has done and who God is and give them a chance to, to get where they need to be to say, yeah, I, I want to I know more. I, I want to I respond. I want to receive what God is offering me through his son Jesus, whatever their response is, and that's where she was. She was ready to respond, and so I was helping her articulate that in prayer. Um, here's what kinds of things you might want to express from your heart, and I would give her things that she might pray to God, and, and this has got to be your heart to God. It's not about the words. It's about the heart. And so I would say something, the translator would say something, she would say something, and then I would go on. And suddenly, partway through the prayer, she just stopped it, dead in its tracks. And then there's this long interaction between the two of them where I'm left out because I don't speak the language. And finally, my translator turned to me and he said, uh, she can't, she can't respond to Christ. It's like, what, what happened? I thought she was very interested. Oh, she is very interested. She wants to, but she can't. What do you mean she can't? Why can't she? And we're sitting uh, at the edge of a cornfield near her home, and uh, he points, he says, right in that cornfield there, there's a demon that lives there, and she's afraid that if she accepts Christ, he's going to make trouble, and so she won't. In fact, she wants us to pray to cast out the demon. When we were in Cambodia a number of months ago, one of the privileges we had is there was a gathering of around 1,000 people, and I had the chance to share Christ at that and there were more than 100 people who made responses at that service who said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And when, when you kind of, if you will, parachute in and you share Jesus and, and people respond, there's always this big question mark, at least in my mind and heart, is, is this real? I mean, I know God's powerful. I know the gospel's powerful. It's real. And I know people all over the place can receive insight from the Spirit, can be brought into that relationship with God. But Wow, this sure seems surreal, at least. And one of the things that really cemented for me, no, something really significant is happening, is that, you know, there's all kinds of people up front that are praying, and, and there's some Cambodian Christian leaders there. And one of, the, one of the leaders walked by me as they were counseling with all these people, and he opened his hand, and it was absolutely chock full of, of string. Right? There were, I don't know, dozens of strings. And what those strings were, were they were little bracelets, little string bracelets that people had made to ward off evil spirits. And when they came to faith in Christ, they said, I don't need that anymore, popped it off, gave it to the guy. And that was, that was evidence that, wow, these, these people really do understand what they're doing, and they're really tr entrusting themselves to Christ. And there were dozens and dozens of those. Very, very encouraging to me. But it also raises an important issue. 
right? The, the world in which we live, there's more going on than just what you and I see. And, and in our culture, we often are able to kind of keep that blocked out, right? Just day-to-day life and, and doing what we're doing in the culture in which we live, stuff kind of works. And every once in a while, most of us, I think, at one point or another, have experiences that kind of break through that, and we go, whoa, what was that? And that was kind of scary, right? A lot of the world lives where that's much more in their face, and either way, there's that reality that's going on, and, and God is part of that reality, only he's, he's the supreme reality, right? And so God, with, with both this woman and with these people in, in Cambodia, the issue was there's this... Um, force, there's this power, there's this being or beings that I'm afraid of, is God able to protect me? Is God powerful enough? And in fact, the reality is if we could really see and understand, we would find that God is the scariest of all. And we try to make God not scary. That seems poor form. That seems... Um, pretty unwelcome, actually, in our idea of who God ought to be. But if you think about it, we want God to help us with the toughest things. We want him to be toothless in dealing with us, but we want him to have a full set of big fangs when it comes to dealing with our problems and the difficulties in our world. We want God to be powerful and able to overcome. We just don't want him to be that with us, which really makes us God, right? We are trying to tell God how to work and how to live and that's not going to work. And what I would like to try to help us do is, is capture a little bit of a sense this morning, even just for a moment, of the fact that we do serve a scary God. And that we need to stop trying to make him unscary. First off, that's just wrong. It's foolish. But secondly, it's not going to help us anyway. I need a big, powerful, scary God to navigate me through my life. I need someone who's bigger and stronger and inexplicably wiser than I am, or I'm never going to get there. So we want to recapture a sense of God is scary. He's scary. He's, we don't want him to be unscary. We just want him to be different scary. Okay. If, if you want to keep Axel's point for the sermon, there it is. Not unscary, but different scary God. How's that for fancy English? So, in order to get to the passage in Hebrews and really understand that, that's why I've started you in the book of Exodus, because this passage is quoted extensively in Hebrews, and I want to get it as it unfolds, because um, a number of weeks ago, we looked at another warning passage in Hebrews, and and we saw that there should be a thing called the fear of God that is not just a, a reverence, it should be a reverence, but there should actually be some fear there, because of who God actually is. And that's pretty prevalent throughout the scriptures. When the pagan kings like Abimelech or Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar have these encounters with God, they're all totally terrified, right? When Joshua meets the angel of the Lord, he winds up face down in the dirt. When Samson's parents meet the angel of the Lord after the angel leaves, they're terrified that they're going to die because we have seen God. When Isaiah has that vision that's so well known, he's like, woe is me, I am undone. Ezekiel and Daniel have multiple encounters and they keep falling over. In fact, Daniel literally passes out from the stress of encountering God just as he manifests himself. 
And then we come to the New Testament, we think, well, that's, that's the way things were. And then we come to Jesus, and he's very much more approachable. And he's supposed to be. That's part of why he came as he came. He came to stand in our place, and he had to be human to do that. But he also came to be approachable so that we could understand and discern and know God in a way that we could relate to. But remember, when he entered this world, he veiled his glory. So his closest friend, who had countless meals and did countless journeys and did countless hours of teaching and ministry and just hung out with Jesus, the one who at the Last Supper is so close, he's kind of one of those annoying friends that's leaning on his shoulder. I can't eat, John, get off of me. That friend, who is that intimate and knows him that well, when he sees the risen Christ in his glory, in Revelation falls down at his feet as if dead, right? God is not tame. We've, we've done our best to domesticate him and to tame him, and that's bad. That is bad news. We, we want to be the Pevensey children, and we need to be more like the beavers. If you're familiar with the reference from um, C.S. Lewis's work, the, the children who are caught into Narnia, they hear about Aslan, the lion, who is a figure of Christ, and, and he's like, is he safe? As they're talking to the beavers. And it makes sense in the story. I know it's not very sensible, and, but it does. It makes sense in the story. And I, don't, I think it's Mrs. Beaver who says, oh, no, no, he's not safe. But he's good. We need a God who's not safe, but who's good. And everything in the culture around us and even in our own hearts tries to domesticate him and make him safe, and that ruins everything. We need to recapture some of that because it's only as I understand how small I am and how big God is and the implications of that that I can really understand the gospel. It is only when I truly get that my life is precarious that I would also truly experience that Jesus is precious. So with all of that in the background, Let's read, this is surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments. God is making the people of Israel into his own nation, and he's giving them their founding covenant. And in doing that, he appears on the mountain, and he gives some instructions to Moses, who's the, uh, the spokesman. And so if you're in chapter 19 of Exodus, start in verse 10, it says, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today, and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Right, come up to the edge of the mountain, not climb up the mountain. Now, that, there's aspects of that that are a little harder for us to process, and we won't take the time actually to do that. I just want to focus on the main point here. He's saying, I'm going to manifest myself on this mountain. That is awesome in the real sense of that word. That is terrifying. And I am holy. 
You don't casually come into my presence. In fact, only Moses is invited into my actual presence because he's the special spokesman I've chosen. And everyone else has to gather around. They have to have sanctified themselves. They have to have done the things to make sure they are ritually pure. And then they will wait at the foot of the mountain for my voice to speak. And don't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you will violate my holiness and you will be killed. In fact, people will have to uh, execute capital punishment. They can't even touch you. You touch the mountain. I'm not touching you. They're going to stone you. They're going to shoot you with arrows. That's the same thing for animals. Now, all that stuff feels a little extreme to us. Part of that's because we have lost our sense of the holiness and awesomeness and proper terror of God. God is not like anyone or anything else. And so as he as he sets them up to hear the covenant and to be drawn deeper into this relationship, know how to live rightly in relationship with him, he starts by setting some boundaries saying, I am not to be trifled with. You need to take this really seriously. Um, Skipping down verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. All right, the picture is pretty scary. It's like every natural disaster you can think of all happening at once, all in this one location because the presence of God has shown up. There's earthquake, there's tornado, there's fire, horrible noises, darkness. This is, this is terrifying. And this is how God chooses to present himself. He wants him to understand some things. In fact, he literally does this so they will experience him at the opening of this new covenant. And then Moses goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes back down, and then the narrative continues much the same way. I think the reason for that is because the the fireworks never stop. The whole time Moses is on the mountain, there's earthquake and fire and smoke and tornado and all of this stuff going on. It's, It's terrifying the whole time. And when he comes back down with the Ten Commandments, it says this, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Like, okay, we want to hear what God says, we just don't want to hear him say it, because that's too scary. That'll kill us. Now, actually... They've already started to get off course here. They've been hearing the voice of God and they've not been struck dead. But they're creating distance because of the fear. Their fear is going in the wrong direction, right? The terror of experiencing God, they have not understood all that is being offered. And so they are, they're running. They're they're distancing themselves. They're saying, Moses, you go. We'll listen to you. We don't even want to hear God anymore. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off, and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So here we have scary, 
God is scary. We don't want to make God unscary. We can't. That would be a lie anyway. God is not unscary. He's just scary in a different way. And in fact, this text even points that out. They just missed it. They start off on the wrong foot. They never quite get their footing under them. Look in verse 20 again. And let me just read. Uh, I'll drop a few words out <clears throat> to make the sentence structure really clear. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come so that you will fear. That's what it says in verse 20. Don't be afraid, because God's come to make you afraid. And right there is a really important issue. There's different kinds of fear. And the key to having a relationship with God that is vibrant and powerful and meaningful and all of the things that we would want it to be, all the things he would want it to be, is not to try to tame him, not to edit him down and make him some domesticated, toothless God. He is scary. I need him to be that almighty terrible God to give me what I need to go through life. Part of that, by the way, is him getting to make the call because he's the sovereign one, which means I don't even always agree with him. I need a God who will not always agree with me because I'm going to mess it up and he's not, right? Scary is fundamental to God and it is fundamental to a healthy relationship with God, but it's different scary. In chapter 20, verse 20, Basically, he says, you shouldn't be scared the way you are. God is giving you this experience to draw you into a new experience of him, which itself is, is, is frightening, but it is fruitful. Right? And they, they stumbled and struggled with that, and that's part of why they ultimately lost, lost out on the things God had for them. But... We need fear of God to really walk with him. The question is, what kind of fear? Now, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, please. That passage is the backdrop. In fact, he's going to quote parts of it. You'll recognize it immediately. And as we look at it, it's going to to be two different pictures. There's going to be a contrast. In order to understand the contrast, let me just remind you of a couple of things. In Hebrews, he never, ever denigrates the old covenant. He never denigrates Moses. He never says those things were a waste or foolish or stupid. They were given by God. He just says the argument of Hebrews is as great as that was, Jesus is greater. As important as it was to listen to that, following Jesus is all the more important. And as hazardous as it was to run away from that, to to be unfaithful to that, how much more hazardous do you think it's to be unfaithful to Christ? It's not, this is bad, now here comes good. It's like, this is good, now here comes perfect. And as we look at this passage, there's gonna be a contrast and it's gonna be, fear is gonna be a central part of that contrast. The second part, it's easy to read it and miss that it is still a, there's a a fear in the middle of this passage, right? But it's a different kind of scary. It's what what he's reminding them of. And remember, their problem is they became scared of other things more than of God which happens to you and me all the time, right? I'm afraid of missing out more than I'm afraid of missing what he offers. I'm afraid of what you think of me more than I'm afraid of what he thinks of me. I'm afraid of, fill in the blank. I'm afraid of dying. 
I'm afraid of getting sick. I'm afraid of all these kinds of things that fill my life instead of being afraid of missing the path that he has for me that says all of that pain will be redeemed. And all of that challenge will be fruitful. And and, in, in their time, the pain of their circumstances has gotten such and gotten scary enough that they're ready to walk away. And he's pulling them back, saying, don't do that, right? A proper fear of God puts every other fear in its perspective. And um, so let's look at this passage here. Chapter 12, verse 18 of Hebrews. You've not come to what may be touched. That's Mount Sinai. They weren't supposed to touch it, but they could touch it. It's right there. It's physical, and he's going to make a jump between the physical and the spiritual, right? So you've not, touched, you've not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. They are so terrified. They are so terrified indeed So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Even Moses was fearful in that context. That is a terrifying thing. He said, but that's not what you've experienced. right, there's terror written in every line of what we've just heard. I want to change the nature of the scary. And I want to remind you that you have come to that same scary God, but things are different. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, which was the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was built. But now he's shifted to a spiritual conversation. You haven't come to the literal Mount Zion. You're not in Jerusalem right now. You've come into the heavenlies, which is a theme throughout Hebrews. It says there are things going on and, and in the presence of God, stuff is happening. And you as a child of God actually are in a real but spiritual sense in the presence of God. And that reality is supposed to invade your daily reality, and that's supposed to be the greater reality. So when this reality gets so scary that you want to run away from that reality, something's really broken. You've come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, normally, that would be a terrifying picture. When people came into the presence of angels, most of the stories I I talked about actually were angels showing up, and people are freaking out because angels are these terrifying, powerful beings, overwhelming to us. And now you're going to walk into a room where there's innumerable, they can't even be counted. But you've been brought into that room where they are in festal gathering. It's a celebration. This is a picture of worship before the throne of God. And you're right there. You get to be right among them. Not in, not in the terror of, of some intruder, but in somebody who belongs there. He goes on, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, those are saints who've gone before, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, again, saints that have gone before, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, he's giving us a contrast, right? He's giving it to them who are struggling to endure, to stay faithful, Right? He's already told them, look, run with endurance your race. 
It's God who's disciplining you. It's based in this relationship. Last week, it's, and we need each other to help each other, encourage each other, carry each other on this journey. It is not an easy thing. And now he's coming back to this ultimate heavenly reality. And then he's gonna move on from here. And just in case it doesn't feel like this is, that this is all just happy, it says, no, wait, see to it that you don't refuse him. This is verse 25. Don't refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. It's a warning passage. In fact, the last verse in this chapter says, our God is a consuming fire. So he's not, he's not stripping the scary out of it. He's just giving us a different kind of scary. And um, maybe the best way to capture this is uh, comparing something I saw on the internet recently with something I, I've heard um, of a personal experience. So a guy that I know, not well, but I know him and I know this is a true story, was in Rwanda and uh, he was there to, um, well, there to do other things, but he, he went on one of those gorilla kind of experiences because that's where all the gorillas are. Gorillas in the mist, it's the Rwandan mists, right? Those mountains there where they are. And before you go on one of those trips, I've never done one because they're really expensive. But before you go on one of those trips, they, they orient you and they give you, here's how to behave and so on. And the reason for that is because it's super scary. You are going into their territory. You are an intruder. This is not your place. This is their place. And these are gorillas. On TV, may look kind of cool. You watch the movies with the superheroes and all that stuff. It may seem kind of amazing. But really, these are terrifying creatures. And you are going into their territory. Right? You know, a, 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 a human man. I, I read one of the kind of fitness websites. Um, if, if you as a man are able to bench press at any point in your life 300 pounds or more, you're a 90th percentile or above. You're truly strong. If you're a woman and can bench press 300 pounds, it goes even higher, right? That's a strong person. And that's somebody who at any point in their life can do that, puts them way above average. They're really strong. If you are an average full-grown gorilla, at any point in your life, you can bench press your Ford F-150. There's a pretty big disparity there. So those movies, don't believe them. Don't try this at home, folks. Right? You can say, ah, if I was in a fight, you know, I could, you know, sucker punch this guy. I'll, you know, I'll hit him. He won't see it coming. You could be the strongest, best trained, most athletic, most able to deliver the right blow to the right spot. And his bone density and muscle density is so immense that all you would do is succeed at just annoying him. On the other hand, if he decided, I'm not going to sucker punch you, you're going to see it coming, one blow could shatter your skull, right? Gorillas are super powerful. That joke, where does a 500-pound gorilla sleep anywhere he wants? It's rooted in reality. He can sleep anywhere he wants. Nobody's going to tell him otherwise. So when you're going to go see them, you need to know these guys, and not only, by the way, they also have huge fangs just in case the fists and the strength and all that wasn't enough, right? These guys are a whole different order, a whole different class, and you're coming into their territory. You better know how to behave. And even if you know how to behave, who knows what's gonna happen? 
So the guy that I know went on one of these adventures, and one of the gorillas, a silverback, decided it was going to drag him away into the forest. Came over and grabbed him and started to drag him away. What do you do? What can you do? That is literally all you can do. Now, thankfully, the gorilla let him go. Who knows what was in his mind, but he dropped him, and they were able to leave, and everything was fine. Now, that contrasted with a video that I just saw this last week. Uh, A naturalist who had rescued a baby gorilla and raised it for a good part of its life and then released it into the wild. That was now full-grown, silverback, major player in the jungle kind of guy. And he went into the forest to find him, and he met that same gorilla, right? And there was this reunion, which was at first a little bit restrained, but by the end, the gorilla grabbed him and wouldn't let him go out of affection. What do you do? (laughs) You wait until the hug's over. (laughs) That's all you can do. Finally, the gorilla let him go, and he was able to go back, but it was a totally different experience. It was just as dangerous and truly scary. But it was a different kind of scary because it was a different kind of relationship. Here's what he's saying here. Only a gorilla is a very, very weak analogy to God. God is terrifying. He truly is. He has your days numbered and you are accountable to him. It said earlier in Hebrews, right? The entire world, the entire universe, all of creation, one of those phrases, you can look it up, Hebrews 4, stands naked and accountable before him, right? The things that you think nobody else knows, God knows, and he's going to hold you accountable. In fact, the things you don't even know, right? There's things that I go, oh, I discover things about myself as I live longer that dread, that dread, distress me. I didn't even know that. God knew that all along, and he's going to hold me accountable, right? My, num- my days are not in my hands. They are in his. Every person who ever lives and dies, dies when he says so. It is an act of his will. Now, there's other things that work around that, to be sure, but at the end of the day, Psalm 139 says our days are numbered, and they're in his control. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present, and he is absolutely holy. He is not like me, and he can't even be around me. That's terrifying. That's a scary thought. And none of that has stopped being true. What's changed is the relationship. Now, even in... Exodus, right? God is making a people for himself, so he's bringing them into relationship, and that's part of the, I think, tragedy of chapter 20, verse 20, where it says, don't be afraid. He's brought you here so that you will be afraid. It's like, I need to change how you fear me so that you walk with me, and they failed at that, but most of the rest of the book of Exodus is saying, here's how to build the tabernacle so exactly the right way for you to engage with me, because I want to engage with you. There's relationship. You are different than everyone else. And yet that failed. 
When Jesus comes along, the main argument of the book of Hebrews is Jesus overwhelms all of that. He eclipses all of that. The old covenant, the, 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 the things that were revealed by angels and Moses and the old priesthood, all of that stuff, it, it wasn't bad. It was just very inadequate. And it has been completely overwhelmed in who Jesus is. And the nature of our relationship with God has radically shifted. And he says, look, this is how it was for them, but this is your experience. The experience still has a measure of fear that belongs to it. It's embedded in this warning passage. And look, in the middle of the list of things, he talks about you know, the angels in festal gathering, the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous, Jesus. But in the middle of that, he says, and you have come to God, the judge of all. Reminder, he's got a full set of teeth. But he's invited you into his throne room. He's invited you into the worship service. You belong there. Those who are like you that have gone before, the prior saints, had their names enrolled in heaven, it says. They were enlisted into this community. And then after it talks about God the judge, it says that those who were righteous have now been made perfect. Those who were righteous, righteousness, Romans makes it really clear that the righteousness of God, the righteousness that's available to you and me isn't by our works, but it's by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed and it is from faith, start to finish, Romans 1.17. So the people who had faith, the people who trusted God, the people who brought, who, who surrendered to him and, and were brought into relationship, now in heaven have been perfected. They've been brought to completion what he promised has now become reality. And you belong there. You're a part of that group. You, you, you get to walk right in with those angels and worship. You get to be right there with those old saints who have been perfected, who've, who've been enrolled in the citizenship of heaven. You have every right to be there. Yes, God is the one to whom we are still accountable and he is still a God with a full set of teeth, but you have a relationship with him. You belong, you are his child. That's what he's just been talking about, right? He says, the, the difficult things we experience, part of them are because we're his children and he's training us up. So, so I, I want you to understand that you belong. The scary God is different scary. It's not like the first guy who, praise God, the gorilla let him go. It's like the second one. There's actually a bond. The gorilla reaches out to hug him. Now he's still a gorilla. Hope he doesn't squeeze too hard. <laughs> yeah. But God's not like that. God's always pitch perfect in everything. It's like you have this relationship with God. That's who you are. And then he wraps it with the real key. Because he says, you've come to all of this and to Jesus, the center of the book, the center of the universe, the center of history, the center of our lives, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Abel, was the, that's the first recorded human bloodshed. His brother murdered him. And when God called Cain out, he says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. It's crying for vengeance. The world is broken. The world is sinful. The world is rebellious. The world is wicked. And Cain, that involves you. And you've taken your brother's life. And something needs to be done to write this. And the writing of that is severe. It's crying out for vengeance. 
But, but then there's another murder that takes place that changes everything. And the, the, the word of that blood is a word that's God so loved that he gave. It's, it's a word that says, you've been forgiven. It's a word that says you've been embraced and accepted. It's a word that says you are no longer who you were. In him, you're new creation. You're the righteousness of God. You can come into the throne room of God without the terror like they would have had. Yes, God's still scary. Don't lose that. But you have relationship. Because of Christ, everything's different. I've shared this before, but it just has gripped me. An old man in the church that was on staff at in Anaheim would come to church, 98 years old, he'd ride his bike to church, blind, legally blind. I don't know why a 98-year-old man on a bicycle who's blind makes sense in anyone's world, but that's what he did. Every Sunday, he'd come to church, and I don't really understand why, because he'd come and he'd sit down about where Greg's sitting there, and then he'd immediately go to sleep, right? And I was doing most of the preaching at that point, and so I was always preaching to his closed eyes. Now, I preach to some of your closed eyes. I get that. I try not to put you to sleep, but it happens sometimes. Well, with uh, with Cliff, it was every single Sunday. He would always come, he'd always sit, he'd always go to sleep, and he'd lost all his filters, and he'd lost all of his volume control, like tends to happen. And every once in a while, he would wake up, and in the middle of whatever's going on, he would proclaim loudly, loudly. And he would just say one thing, and then he'd go back to sleep. He'd wake up, whether I was preaching, we were singing a song, it was an offering, somebody else was praying, didn't matter. Thank God for Jesus! And then he'd go back to sleep. And then when the service was over, he'd wake up and he'd ride his bike home. But three or four or five times, he would, he would wake up enough to remind us we should thank God for Jesus. And I think this passage says that in spades. The world lulls us to sleep. We get so consumed with what's around us. Sometimes we're overwhelmed with it. Sometimes we are more afraid of that than a rightful fear of God. And it presses us and pushes us and we're ready to run the wrong way and do the wrong thing and abandon and, and, and compromise, do all these things. It's like, don't forget, this is the God of the universe. He has a full set of teeth. You need him to have those teeth if he's gonna address your problems. But by the way, that's scary. But it's a different kind of scary because of Jesus. Thank God for Jesus, wouldn't it be great if we could just wake up from the sleep we walk around in so often and live with that? Thank God for Jesus. I'm accepted by the omnipotent, omniscient, holy ruler of the universe who cannot tolerate any imperfection in all of my brokenness, my sinfulness, my woundedness, my rebellion, my wickedness. And yet he doesn't see me that way. Thank God for Jesus. I am invited into the, the worshiping of heaven, the festal gathering of angels, the saints that have gone before, enrolled in heaven, made perfect now. I get to be right there with him because of what Jesus has done and his word, his blood that speaks that better word, the word of forgiveness, the word of transformation, the word of acceptance, the word of you are now new creation in me. Thank God for Jesus. We need to do that. Two things that I would encourage. One, 
Some may be sitting here and you have still not actually surrendered to Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank God for Jesus. It can be a different kind of scary. He's no less powerful and he's no less holy, but he has given his son for you. He will not withhold any good thing. He's just saying, you need to surrender and you need to trust me. Will you do that? Will you do that today? Just in your heart, say, God, I need a savior. And I believe Jesus is that savior. Forgive me and accept me, transform me. I surrender. If you need help understanding that, unpacking that, doing that, let us know. We'd love to talk. Most of us, I suspect, have made that response. So then the question is, how much of my life do I live walking forward asleep? And when, does I, when do I wake up and say, wait a minute, thank God for Jesus. How will I cultivate that this week? How will I express that this moment? We're going to take our offering, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to thank God for Jesus. And we can do that from hearts that are overflowing with praise if we really understand what we're doing. Lord, I thank you for Jesus, for what he has done, for who he is, and for what that means for us, for the better word, that word of forgiveness and grace and and acceptance, the fact that we are your children and that you are transforming us, that we are invited in and we are not intruders, but we belong in your presence. And Lord, even in the midst of this world and the daily realities, there's still a sense in which we can live in your presence. Would you help us to do that now? Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you as Savior, who hasn't responded to the gospel, I pray that you'd bring them to that place in their heart. Only you can give them that insight and the faith to believe, and I pray that you would, that they wouldn't harden themselves or walk away and diminish you and ignore, but they would surrender. And Lord, as we worship, may our hearts just overflow with praise. As we give these gifts, that's part of our worship, I pray that you would use them to lift up the name of Jesus here and around the world. We pray in his name, amen.